Hey folks, next up on This Week in Law, we're going to talk about PS3 hacking, James Joyce on a microbe, and everything relating to law and journalism, citizen journalism specifically, with two law students studying that very topic, Sarah Barrent and Don McLostick. And we've got Evan Brown too, next up on This Week in Law. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. And with for This Week in Law is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 103, recorded March 18, 2011. It's all about media. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look professional. Get started with a free package at freshbooks.com. Hello and welcome to This Week in Law. I'm Denise Howell, and we're here this week with a couple of journalism and law students from New York Law School. Thrilled to have them with us from the Legal As She Is Spoke blog, Sarah Berent and Don Mikko... <laughs> Mick <laughs> I'm going to have to have you say it one more time. I'm sorry. I tried to get it right before the show. It's okay. It's Don Mikulastic. Don Mikulastic. Thank you so much for joining us, you guys. It's great to see you. And uh, also with us is Evan Brown. Hi, Evan. Hey, how's it going? It's great to be here as usual. Great to see you too. Um, so I am uh, really excited to talk about journalism and the law with you all today because as I was thinking about having Don and Sarah on the show, I was thinking that there is so much going on in the collision of journalism and law right now. Um, there's so much controversy as more and more people can put things out in the world um, through various means, whether it's a show like what we're doing today or just, you know, streaming from their cell phones or photographing and videoing from wherever they may be, that uh, the question of how you're using my stuff and what you're saying about me is becoming a real uh, pr uh, primary kind of an issue in our society today. And uh, so I, I want to get into some of those issues in our stories we're going to discuss. And uh, the first thing I think I want to talk about is um, the how you're using my stuff point uh, from the citizen journalism standpoint. And that would be um, my name and likeness, for example, or... Uh, you know, you can think about uh, so many people are so um, up in arms about the way that it's so easy to capture all of the moments of our lives these days. You think about sports leagues, you think about the police who don't want to be audio or videotaped, you think about parents who are upset when their minor children happen to be captured um, on something that goes up online and it wasn't something they approved. Um, so all of this is kind of coming to a head. Uh, Don, you wrote a story about uh, someone who was not that excited to find that or, or asserts that uh, her name, likeness, and uh, person <laughs> was the basis for the very successful novel, The Help. You want to tell us what went on there as our lead into this kind of point? Sure. Um, so 
Abelene Cooper uh, is a maid down in Jackson, Mississippi, and apparently she works for the brother of the author of the book, The Help. Um, and she's saying that it's her name and likeness that are being used as a, a character who basically has the same name. It's like Abilene. There's barely any difference in the spelling and the pronunciation. Um, and she's claiming misappropriation and um, unpermitted use of her name and likeness. Um, so basically, in my article that I wrote, uh, I don't really think that she's going to win with this case. I think that, you know, as much as it might be a similar name, it might be a similar character. Um, I just don't think she really has much of a case, um, especially having to do with fair use. You know, I mean, the author is allowed to kind of draw on her own real life, um, you know, experiences and can, you know, I guess the kind of main thing is transformation. You know, she kind of put her own twist on it. She put her own spin on it and she was able to transform the character enough um, to kind of deliver the message that she was trying to uh, put into the book. So I don't think that Ms. Cooper has much of a, a chance here. Right. Um, Evan, do you have any thoughts about uh, whether we need to lighten up in our, our perception of how our stuff is being used, our name and likeness in this particular case? Well, I don't know if we need to lighten up uh, more than we just need to be sensible about things in, in general. Because, you know, lightening up would suggest that there's been some kind of trend towards silliness, which I definitely think there there is. But what's important here is that the ultimate standard that we need to, to use to, to determine whether there's, you know, a reasonable case to bring for, like, misappropriation of your name, image, and persona or whatever hasn't hasn't changed. The funniest thing I think about this case is, you know, isn't it... You know, is, is the irony not lost on anyone else that says that the, the plaintiff here is saying that the defendant held her uh, up to the public in a false light? Uh, but wait, isn't it a novel? You know, <laughs> it's like a work of work of fiction in the, in the first instance. So, right. um, but I get what you're saying, Denise. You know, the, the fact that it's so much easier for us to, uh, well, not necessarily for us, but for information about us to be put out there either by ourselves or by someone else, uh, we, and it kind of harkens back to what we've talked about before. It's a lot easier for us all to become uh, limited public figures or pub public figures. You know, we've talked about that in the context of of, of defamation. I think some of the principles in, in those sorts of, of uh, thoughts to, to have about this and the, the implications of, of social media and uh, the ability to become more popular can play into the, the sorts of sensibilities that one should have uh, when they're thinking about whether they're, they're getting ripped off. Sure. Let me kick this one to Sarah. Um, in the last week, we have seen so much video coming out of Japan and photographs and everything else from the first person people on the ground during the quake and tsunami. And so the twist on this is it, not that um, so much the, the people in these videos would be upset about being captured, but the people who have made them are finding that they have the, the nuggets that all the news media wants to use. Um, and that's just how this story has been reported. And I think going forward, you know, it's how news will be reported uh, globally from here on out. So um, tell us about the legal journalistic ramifications of this. You know, obviously here the people who are concerned about their stuff are the people who have captured these very poignant and uh, telling bits of journalism. What do you what do you think about 
their rights and concerns. Sarah? Well, when you're reporting on such newsworthy events, I don't really think the person who's actually shooting the video is going to be really that concerned with any um, profit off of it. If you go on websites like CNN, they have this section called iReports where they encourage users to submit videos and submit articles. However, it is subject to their terms of use, which grants CNN a non-exclusive license to alter and edit the material. So any footage that any major news organizations would pick up, I'm sure they're going to have the person who actually made the video sign this license agreement and maybe um, attribute to that person. Right. Uh, Don, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, I think in today's day and age, it's uh, it's more, you know, the citizens and the people that are doing all this news gathering because you can't have the news everywhere at all times. It also goes to, um, you know, surveillance and stuff like that. I mean, we're getting a lot of our video and our news reports now from surveillance cameras and you know these kind of hidden secretive big brother type cameras that are in ATMs and on street corners and things like that. So I feel like it's just, it's our world expanding, but at the same time kind of getting smaller because you're able to be everywhere all the time. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Right. Evan, I was having a chat with uh, someone who attended the Oscars recently, and uh, she was made to sign all kinds of, uh, basically, an anti-social media pact that uh, you would not, you know, be able, that you would not be tweeting, you would not be blogging, you would not be taking pictures or video um, to uh, to capture any of the behind-the-scenes proceedings at the event. Do you think that we're going to see more and more of those sorts of strictures as we go about our daily lives. First of all, I am so impressed that you hang out with people who go to the Oscars. That's great. <laughs> good, good for you. It's, um, it's not as impressive as actually going, but. <laughs> right. Well, um, for for sure, there, there are going to be more things like this. We've already seen some last, well, it's probably been a couple of years now. I think this was fall of 2009, the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, you know, the athletic conference, tried to prohibit uh, people who were going to football games from live tweeting uh, the, the events. And, and that was just, uh, you know, laughed out of town really quickly and the SEC retracted uh, that policy. So um, it, it, it it certainly is in uh, the interests of those who are putting on these shows uh, to, to want to do that for, for a number of different reasons. One, they want to control the message so that it's perceived in a, in a certain way, you know, in terms of, of goodwill. And, and that might be something, you know, with the Oscars, you know, the, the Motion Picture Academy might, you know, want to maintain a certain level of, of prestige, you know, notwithstanding the fact that Perez Hilton exists in this world and all that stuff. But, um, but also for the for the copyright aspect of it uh, as as well, and just you know just kind of this notion of the, the 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 fundamental reason why you just why purveyors of this kind of stuff want to have uh, that kind of control. That's you know where we see it at a, at a theoretical level, but at a realistic level, it's just um, absurd to think that you're always going to be able to manage. Um, you know, the, the behaviors of those people who are there who, you know, now have the capability of streaming live high definition video to the, to the world at large. Perhaps the Oscars is a little bit different. It's, it's you know, 
going back to how I started my answer to this question, it's still a pretty elite group of people who are there, and they may have their own vested interest in complying with those things. But uh, if it's if it's going to be to a large number of people, you know, a stadium full of people uh, who really want to talk about what they're seeing, it's just not practical to think that those kinds of policies could be enforced. So the Oscars is not necessarily a public event except to the extent that uh, they film it and then broadcast it to the public. But there are other things where where people can show up or perhaps like the Oscars, they've been invited or they've bought a ticket um, and they're there with their gear, uh, much like South by Southwest that happened this last week. Um, People come and, you know, at that particular event, there is so much filming going on that uh, it's, it's sort of, I think, gauche if you're not walking around recording the proceedings. Um, but not every cultural event has that dynamic going on. Um, and there is a lot of walking around and filming. I think it was last week we talked about uh, the uh, eyeglasses that had the built-in live streaming capability. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Don... What do, you, what do you think about the concerns that people should have when they're engaged in this? Uh, Braden Henze over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw um, was considering the streaming going on uh, from South by Southwest and asking about the legal aspects. You know, if I'm at a public event and there's some music going on on a stage and, you know, I'm wandering around and I want to maybe interview some people and then uh, package something up, either live stream it or, or put it out after it's edited. Um, what are the legal concerns that I need to have about that as a citizen journalist? And is there anything different about being, you know, a lay person walking around with your non-professional camera and audio gear or someone who's walking around and has a microphone with a CNN tag on it? Can you uh, try that one for us, Don? Well, I mean, I think that any time that you're videotaping anything that would be copyrighted, like, you know, music or, you know, you go into a movie theater, you can't just videotape it. I mean, that's all kind of piracy issues. Um, but I think, you know, for a regular person, you're going to a, a festival, you want to take a video with your friends, you want to take a little picture here and there, you might want to talk to some people. I think a lot of that will kind of hinge on how you hold yourself out. If this is a secretive, you know, you've got a a hidden video camera and you're kind of taking these secret videos and putting them on the on the internet, I think there's a, a big problem as far as copyright's concerned. Whereas, like you said, if you're a CNN and you have a big camera crew, um, you're holding yourself out a little bit more publicly. Um, I mean, I think that either way you're going to have a copyright issue just because this is, uh, you know, especially if you're videotaping um, the people performing, you know, that that's all copyrighted music. I just, I think that you have to be really careful with that. And it would also depend on whether it's Prince playing in the background or not. This reminds me of that the Lens versus Universal Studios case. Right. That was the one where the it was the YouTube video. Uh, the mom had filmed her, um, you know, infant, very young toddler uh, child, kind of starting to dance. Uh, could barely walk, you know, dancing in Prince's Let's Go Crazy was playing in the background. And the, the big thing to come out of that case was that the uh, Universal Studios should have thought about fair use before it sent a DMCA takedown notice. That's what the, the that's kind of the big, the big thing we've learned from that. And so, you know, that, that, 
tells us that you know fair use is going to be uh, a big part of this analysis, and it's also it also tells us that it all depends on how sensitive the uh, the rights holder is in all of this. If it's um, uh, you know, if it's someone like OK Go playing in the background, you probably don't have much to worry about. But if it's Prince, you know, you better not even play a single snippet or you're going to have lawyers knocking down your door. Absolutely. Go ahead, Sarah, you had a thought? Well, you know, you know, South by Southwest is such like a newsworthy event. You know, it's, it's a big festival. There's a lot going on. So if you had a video camera, we're kind of recording some stuff and interviewing people. You know, I don't really see how you would come into any invasion of privacy issues because I don't think you know anyone would have this expectation of privacy when you're at this big festival and you see all of the cameras everywhere and you're interviewing with someone on camera I don't I don't foresee that being a real issue um, if you put it up on your blog or your website or whatever right you almost shouldn't be there if you don't want to be filmed or captured in some way um, and I think too it might matter you know as we continue on uh, and things continue to develop might matter where you post because as we've seen on YouTube they have mechanisms in place now where you, if you have captured music the uh, or, or some other th thing where there would be a copyright uh, ramification but that specifically they have a program in place for music um, that the rights holder has the option of saying well uh, we see that this is, in fact, an, an unauthorized, unlicensed reuse and incorporation of our recorded work. Um, but they have the option to either leave it there and monetize it or take it down. Um, so, you know, you as the person who posted it might, uh, you know, never even know. You simply know that your video has remained up and YouTube is now funneling some of the ad dollars generated by having it there um, to the rights holder. Evan, do you have any thoughts about uh, that kind of system? Um, I wasn't listening to the question. I was putting up a link in chat about the uh, Lens versus Universal Studios case, because uh, and so I was totally spacing out. So That's I quite all right. And, and it is the day after St. Patrick's Day, so um, <laughs> spacing yeah. out on all of our parts may be uh, to be expected. Right. Um, no, I was asking about, uh, I, I was saying that the, the, where the person who captured the video posts the video may make a difference in this equation as we move forward because, for example, YouTube has this system in place where rights holders can either opt to pull something down if it's flagged as something that is theirs. Uh, or leave it there and monetize it. Oh yeah, for sure. Because you know, all of this is going to have to do with how much. Uh, it all goes back to control over this stuff, and then you know, closely linked with control is is monetization. So if there is an opportunity or a vector for monetization, that's going to make a huge difference. If something is is in a in a place uh, that is perceived as valid, you know, and I think YouTube, it's safe to say now that it's 2011 and not 2006, is is a little bit more valid, uh, legitimate is the word I'm looking for when it when it comes to all this stuff. If it's it's some just strange, uh, you know, site that is setting up pirated streams. There, there's going to be uh, a world of difference in how the rights holders are, are going to to approach something like that. So context matters a lot in, in, in all of this stuff. Right. And uh, in the context of Facebook, Evan, you had an interesting post I want to get to in just a minute here about using one's identity 
I guess, is the best way to uh, characterize that. And we're going to get to it in a second, right after I thank our sponsor for this episode of Twill, which is FreshBooks. If you're a small business owner, consultant, or freelancer, you probably love having your own business, but you don't enjoy invoicing. FreshBooks is the online invoicing service which enables you to quickly and easily create and send professional-looking invoices. You can upload your company logo to appear on your invoices to give them a more professional look, and your clients can download a PDF of the invoice so they have it for their records as well. You can receive payments for your invoices. Your clients can pay you via PayPal and 11 other electronic payment services, or they can pay using their credit card. There are more options that FreshBooks gives you. There's an automated late payment reminder to follow up with clients. If you invoice by the hour, something near and dear to we lawyers here, uh, the time tracking feature lets you log hours and consolidate, consolidate your time uh, into one invoice instantly. If you want to send physical invoices for a small fee, FreshBooks will print and mail them to your clients, complete with a return envelope. They charge just $1.39 per invoice or less if bought in bulk. And you can use the FreshBooks iPhone app to track your time and invoice your customers when you're away from the office. Over 2 million users have been sending and paying invoices with FreshBooks since 2004. So try out FreshBooks free today for up to three of your clients. It takes about a minute to set up an account. You go to FreshBooks.com and just sign up absolutely free. Give it a try. Nothing better than uh, kicking the tires and seeing if it works well for you. When they ask you how you heard about FreshBooks, just let them know that you heard about it on This Week in Law. Every day, FreshBooks is giving away a birthday cake to one of our audience members, and it doesn't have to be your birthday to win the cake. FreshBooks draws a name every day for the entire month, so go over to FreshBooks.com and check them out. We thank them so much for their support. So, uh, Evan, what happens? When somebody tags you in a post on Facebook that is associates your name with a photograph um, where you had not authorized that and um, would not have even known that it happened had not Facebook notified you about it uh, after the fact. Somebody took umbrage on this at this and thought that it might actually be actionable. Can you tell us about it? There are so many great cases that teach us about the law and social media that come to us from domestic relations court. You know, a lot of these are like child custody cases or divorce proceedings or something like that, because, you know, we all know that it's in those kinds of contexts where the best parts of, of human nature come forward, right? So what we had here was a case in uh, Kentucky where, and it was a, it was a uh, divorce proceeding that, you know, the question was, was custody. And the the wife slash mother uh, wanted to you know was challenging the court's order that awarded custody to the father, and some of the evidence that the court had considered, the lower court considered, was uh, you know some pictures on uh, Facebook of the mother drinking, and so the the she said that that. What the shouldn't have been considered as evidence. And she made a number of arguments, but the most intriguing one for our present uh, purposes here was that she never gave permission uh, for herself to be tagged in that photo. And um, the court in you know, dispensing with rejecting that argument said uh, an interesting thing here. It said there's nothing in the law that requires a person's permission 
to be given before a photo of them is uploaded to Facebook. And there's nothing in the law that requires permission to be given before they are tagged. And you know that's that's like I say that's that's interesting. That's that it, it's kind of fun to to talk about. Um, I think that there's a certain danger in overstating that or putting too much emphasis on on what the court said uh, there. We we shouldn't look at this as a wholesale kind of per se endorsement of tagging and saying that that is always going to be okay. Um, you know, there's this adage that, that lawyers throw around, you know, bad facts make bad law. You know, we, are, we should not assume that the law says that it's always appropriate to tag someone in Facebook without their permission just because of what this case in Kentucky says, because there are some kind of, uh, well, the facts aren't on all fours with, you know, the real issue is whether you really need that permission. It was a little bit, a little bit ancillary here. I think there are all kinds of situations where a person could have a cause of action against another person for tagging them and putting them up uh, on 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 Facebook. For example, uh, you um, you share a photo with somebody in confidence uh, that shows you in a uh, doing something, and there's an expectation that 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 the contents of that photo will be kept confidential. Just use your imagination. What kind of subject matter could be in that photo there? And, you know, if the expectation and the agreement is that that will be the, the private facts and there will be, that will be confidential and that is put on Facebook and tagged and the person is tagged and then, you know, that, that information is seen by the person's social graph, um, you know, there still might be a cause of action for you know, I don't know, false light. I don't know if it'd be false light invasion of privacy, but publication of private facts, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, you know, maybe there could be some copyright issues there. You know, that tagging to the to the extent that tagging facilitates the distribution of that of that photo. So um, it's interesting to to think about this concept about you know whether or not you really need somebody's permission to tag them on Facebook. But I don't know that we learn a whole lot from this case, uh, other than at least in some circumstances, the court is not going to listen to the argument uh, of somebody complaining, hey, I didn't, uh, I didn't consent to this. Uh, that, that's going to be all right, at least in, in, in some circumstances. So it's, uh, it's something fun to think about. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting conundrum, especially because uh, on Facebook, of course, you've consented to people tagging you, but it's one of those issues of you know, who reads the terms and conditions and they're a bit complicated to understand. Uh, Sarah, any thoughts on this one? I think there are also, Facebook gives you a lot of ways to um, to de-tag photos or to even um, eliminate the option of having photos tagged of you. So, you know, there's a lot that can be done within the site itself to, to eliminate um, the spread of, I guess, your image or your name attached to certain images. That the courts don't necessarily have to get involved. Right. In our in our IRC here, we have a related point coming in from PC guy who says, "Hmm, this via Twitter. Tell me you didn't see this coming. Starting tomorrow, Facebook will use your photos in ads. You have to go to account settings, Facebook ads, and choose no one in order to uh, make sure that you're not actually showing up in an ad. Um, so." There's certainly a use that goes beyond uh, just another user tagging you. It's uh, 
of an appropriation of your name and likeness in a way you might not have expected, but agreed to because, of course, everyone agrees to the Facebook terms of service. Uh, Don, do you think uh, that that's a nice situation to be in, that uh, folks have just clicked agreed and and that uh, Facebook can, can usurp their expectations by deciding to throw a switch and start using uh, people's names and photos in ads? Um, I, I mean, I don't think it's a nice thing. <laughs> something that, you know, you kind of agree to as being, you know, a creature of this social media. People put themselves out there everywhere. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that actually, when you try to tag them, it says, well, this person uh, is not allowed to be tagged until they approve the picture. So there's ways to protect yourself. You just have to be a diligent social media user. I mean, this also goes along with um, one of the stories that you posted about Foursquare and, you know, people getting so up in arms about people being able to contact them or reach them or know where they are all the time. Well, then don't check in on Foursquare. It makes no sense that people are so crazy about their privacy, but yet they put their whole entire lives on the internet for everyone to see at any given second. And then blog about the fact that somebody contacted them after they checked in somewhere at Exactly. On, on Foursquare. So, yeah, I mean, none of this should really come as a surprise to us. It's, the, you know, with the, and, and you know, what you're, what you were talking about there was a, a post by Brad Feld where he kind of recounted his spooky experience at a restaurant in Boulder after he checked in there and somebody called the landline at the restaurant and the manager came over and handed him the phone and it was this muffled voice saying, I know where you are. So, I mean, we've, we've talked about that scenario in the abstract or as a hypothetical, you know, ad nauseum in, in the past. So it's, you know, why are we so surprised or why should we be surprised or shocked when it actually happens? And, you know, with the Facebook using images for advertising purposes, that shouldn't come as any surprise either. You know, the, the, they, they have, you know, it's their practice to, to kind of really be grabby and it's Facebook's practice to kind of be grabby in the rights that it, that it wants from, in the intellectual property of its, of its users. And then, you know, often they'll retreat in the, in the, uh, again, you know, when in the face of resistance from the the user base, but you know there have been, um, you know, it's been in the the. I just remember in February of 2009, there was a big uh, outcry over something that they had done. And one of the things they tried to do was grab a perpetual license from the users, not only in the copyright of that, but also in the rights of publicity of the users, you know, forever. And the, you know, the doomsday scenario and all of that was, you know, you could be driving down the interstate 50 years from now and there could, you could see a photo of yourself on the billboard that you uploaded to Facebook way back in 2008. So, um, you know, the, the, the fact that they're wanting to exploit these kinds of rights and, and to leverage them to, to, to make money or to support the, um, you know, the, 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 the platform is, is no surprise to me uh, whatsoever. And, you know, we're, we shouldn't be so, shouldn't have too much indignation now that it's, it's uh, happening or it's imminent. Right. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's talk more about this whole uh, overarching you know, journalism theme that we've been on for the show. Um, and let's talk next about kids. Um, and let's go to Sarah and uh, just sort of ask you the general question um, as a mainstream journalist or a new media journalist or a citizen journalist, um, what sort of things do people need to bear in mind when children are the subject of either the video they're taking or the story they are reporting on? 
Well, I think, you know, you would want to be a little, obviously be more sensitive than you would if it was an adult and kind of, you know, more or less use common sense as to whether or not you want to post the actual video um, of the child because, you know, it is a child and the child is obviously doesn't have the mental capacity as, you know, a normal consenting adult. So I think that would have to be up to the judgment and the common sense of the person actually taking the video and to, you know, maybe think if this was their child, would they want this on the internet? Mm -hmm. um, we've got, of course, children being more engaged online um, with the consent of their parents under the uh, acts and regulations that govern children, including COPPA. Um, recently, uh, Disney required or acquired a social network that's aimed at kids, something called Togetherville. Uh, Evan, do you have any concerns having a big media empire like Disney um, running social media type sites for children? They probably have numerous other such properties. This is just the uh, the latest addition to the stable. Um, yeah. Any sort of uh, additional concerns when uh, when it's um, you know, such a such a huge conglomerate that is uh, collecting and um, managing children's online presence. Yeah, there's a couple of ways we could we could look at this. You know, one is to be fearful of it because it's you know like Leviathan coming, taking all of this information and it it, it being lost uh, in you know some kind of monolithic. Um, you know, brain that is Disney and, 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 and all of this and maybe used for whatever evil in the future to market to those kids as they're moving along into adolescence and, and adulthood. So there's the, that's, you know, perhaps a, a more cynical or, you know, closer to cynicism on the spectrum of the types of reactions that, that one could have. A more positive response to it could be, well, wait, this is, this is Disney. You know, the response in both of them could be, wait, this is Disney. <laughs> and you could go from there and saying that it's bad. Or you could say, wait, this is Disney. And look, it's, it, it's good. You know, Disney has been entertaining children for years. And look at all the people who um, have grown up to be normal adults because of Disney uh, doing all this. And, and along those lines, you can say, you know, because they're a large enterprise with a lot of resources, uh, perhaps it's more likely that they will more effectively manage this and be more of a responsible corporate citizen and I realize by saying this this must be just absolutely inviting tomatoes to literally be thrown from the the IRC from this to talk about you know a responsible corporate citizen and maybe doing the right thing but you know maybe because of the resources that are there they will implement the right policies and the right uh, framework for for handling privacy and taking it seriously you know not only under US law but under the EU uh, uh, directives and you know the restrictions in, in Asia and, and and wherever else so when it comes right down to it I don't know uh, what to what to think of it um, I think that there could be plenty of worse things that could happen with our children's privacy than Disney uh, having having some of that information, so I suppose on balance, I'm more toward. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a great thing, but I'm I'm not like running scared, and I don't know whether I would you know keep my kids as they get a little bit older from from doing something like this Togetherville thing. Right. Well, if you want to have a a good example of something that might be worse about uh, children's privacy, it's um, a local school district here to me. Uh, in Orange County, California, 
I believe it's the Anaheim School District um, that is uh, giving 7th and 8th graders with four or more unexcused absences a handheld GPS device that looks like an old school cell phone um, that, you know, makes them <laughs> check in, if you will, with their school <laughs> simply by carrying this around with them. Um, you know, and this in the wake of, of course, the Pennsylvania case last year, uh, where students school issued laptops were um, having the cameras flicked on, or there was a lawsuit about that at any rate, um, to spy on the kids. So um, GPS for truant kids. Uh, <laughs> Don, what do you think about that one as a student yourself? Um, well, I also just wanted to go back to what we were just talking about and touch on one thing about um, the Disney kind of interactive media. I think sure. that mostly falls on the parents because if you're a responsible parent, your child cannot access the computer without you being there and without you, you know, unlocking the password or allowing them to be on and monitoring their use of that. So I feel like that really falls on parents to monitor their children, what they're doing on the internet, because they shouldn't be able to get on the internet without the parents, you know, kind of knowing what's going on. Um, Again, I kind of feel like that's the same issue here where I don't think it's the school's responsibility to track down the children and make sure that they get to school. I know, of course, parents can't keep track of their kids all the time, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But that really falls on the parents' shoulders to be responsible for their kids. You know, I mean, why, why are their kids able to be truant from school or, you know, to be absent and, you know, playing hooky all these days in a row? And the parents are doing nothing about it. I just, I kind of feel like this is crossing a little bit of a line um, between the school's responsibility. I mean, where does it stop? The kids have to, you know, it says the, they get wake up calls and, you know, <laughs> alerts and stuff to their phone. Like, this is kind of ridiculous. I'm, I mean, I'm an adult and I'm in law school, so I, you know, can come and go as I please because I'm paying for it. But, you know, ultimately, I feel like it's uh, it's the parents' responsibility to get their kids to school, and I don't think that the school should have to really be burdened with this. Or why can't the school just have someone physically check into the classes instead of giving them a GPS device? It just seems more inherently invasive than, you know, having a student sign in an attendance sheet or having a school administrator just checking in five times a day to make sure that that student is in class. These GPS devices seem unnecessary. Yeah, hmm. and it's it's something that, and I, we're looking at a story here from Mashable by Christina Warren in our links at delicious.com slash thisweekinlaw slash 103, where you can see all our links for this week's show. Um, and we, uh, we don't really see from this, you know, what sort of parental consent is required for uh, this kind of a program to be in place. But I would think that would be a really important aspect of this. You know, there are contexts where I could see um, GPS for a kid being okay. We recently went on a ski trip and uh, the kids are off with their uh, instructor for the entire day um, away from their parents and out on a mountain that's full of, you know, chest deep snow for them in the particular place we were um, going off in trees. And I, they were saying at this particular mountain uh, that, you know, next year they might well offer GPS for kids in that circumstance, which, you know, as a parent, I would go right on, you know, wonderful. I don't want my kid getting lost on the mountain. But uh, as far as a school mandating that uh, the children have to carry around GPS because they um, 
you're right, the unexcused absences thing is completely a parental issue. But uh, we've got, you know, to keep an eye on this kind of thing closely, I think, and, and make sure that uh, if it's going to be a government agency like the school system saying, we're going to track your kids, I think there's, there's some uh, alarm bells that should go off for a parent in that situation. Uh, let's go on and talk about, I don't know, Evan, what do you feel like talking about next? We have a lot of links this week. Evan Brown. Oh, sorry, I pulled a uh, a Colette. Um, oh, I was were... excited to talk about um, James Joyce and his uh, grabby estate and uh, artificial life and the copyright implications thereof. Oh, let's do that. Yes, you sent this one in. Yes, but this was. <clears throat> this is a, an interesting situation where, um, what was the guy's name who came up with the synthetic uh, bacteria? Craig Venter, <clears throat> um, when he uh, came up, you know, with these with this artificially manufactured genome in these these bacteria, he uh, cleverly. I don't understand precisely technologically how he did this because I know that there are only certain uh, amino acids that are in the the, the genetic structure that only have those four letters there or what, um, whatever. I'm, I, I had to drop out of genetics in college, sorry. So um, <laughs> the, 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 he somehow encoded into the genome this very short passage from uh, one of James Joyce's uh, work that said, uh, to live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. Somehow encoded that into the, the, the genome. <clears throat> and he gave a talk, uh, Venter gave a talk at, um, uh, at South by Southwest this, this year. Um, yeah, I was just making sure that it was Venter uh, doing the one giving the talk. And he told this story about how he had done that. And what he said was that when news of this came out, he got a cease and desist letter uh, from James Joyce's estate saying that he should have gotten permission beforehand uh, before he uh, actually used this short snippet of work. And then it, yeah, I guess we need to stop and consider, you know, did he really use that snippet of work by encoding it into the genome in this way? So what we have here is a really wonky kind of, of question as to what it means for a work to be copied. And there are a number of different ways we could take this uh, discussion. Some of the questions we could ask, you know, is it really copyright infringement uh, to, to be uh, appropriating James Joyce's work in this way by encoding it into the genetic sequence, something that never will be seen. So there's a question of whether or not it was really reduced to a tangible medium of expression, which goes to the question, was really there a work? You know, we could also spend time talking about fair use use uh, and other questions of, of infringement, uh, you know, that, that goes along, along these lines. But I just thought this was a really uh, wonky uh, situation, you know, a really interesting example of all this that, that raises some interesting copyright questions and then it could also raise some questions about uh, whether the James Joyce estate continues to have poor judgment in the way that it's aggressive towards scholarly use of, of its works. It certainly would not have been the first time that James Joyce uh, estate would have been in copyright litigation over scholarly uh, use of, of, of its work. So, so I just thought this was really a neat little, little situation. 
It is it's wonderful to uh, to see, as as uh, the writer in our link said, millions little millions of little acts of copyright infringement as the microbes multiplied. Uh, Don, any thoughts about this one? I actually love this article, and I think it's such an interesting idea. Um, I think that obviously, you know, what Evan was saying is that it's not really even copyright infringement because it's not it's not put out there it's not really you know fixed and i mean it's on dna it's like goat dna or it's whatever like de minimis yeah exactly <laughs> like who's ever going to see that but i i was thinking of interesting ways to try to to fight against it and say you know fair use uh, it's really transformative because every time that the the genome mutates, it you know it's a slightly different, and maybe the letters get you know skewed a little bit. I mean, really, this is it's kind of silly, but I think that it's a really interesting uh, take on you know just how nitpicky people are getting and how you know they're trying to take this copyright thing to the next level. And I mean, like you know, are you going to get copyright infringement for having a tattoo on your skin? But then if you gain weight and it stretches, then it's transformed. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just so silly and so out there. Sarah, I'm so glad you mentioned de minimis because that's what I was thinking in all of this. I guess, uh, you know, in the in the article that we have about it that are in our, our show notes for today, you know, Venter is reported to have said that he thought or thinks this would be protected by fair use. And that certainly is the argument that was uh, raised in the litigation. Uh, it was the Professor Schloss, right, that from Stanford a couple years ago when when the Joyce estate was, was being aggressive and trying to stop her from using uh, excerpts from Finnegan's Wake and other, other works and some scholarly works here. She, you know, had Stanford CIS, you know, Larry Lessig, uh, Tony Falzone, and, um, you know, Mark Limley, among others, helping her out. And they settled that case against the Joyce estate and its aggressive copyright posture. But with this, I don't even know that we would need to get to the fair use analysis because of what you said, Sarah. It's de minimis copying. And the de minimis defense to a copyright infringement uh, matter it, it asserts that there is no infringement because the two works, you know, the original work and the work as copied are not not substantially similar because you're only using such a tiny little little portion of it. Fair use, on the other hand, is an affirmative defense and procedurally, and, and I apologize for to the listeners for getting too much into the procedural legal nuances of all this, but an affirmative defense under the, under the way that that litigation plays out assumes for the sake of argument that everything that the plaintiff says is true. It's like, yes, this is an infringement, but it's okay because it's a fair use. So we can talk about, you know, the transformative nature of the work and, and, you know, the fact that there was just a little bit of it used and it doesn't, you know, think about it. It's not going to replace there's, you know, somehow usurp the market for James Joyce's works. People aren't going to buy these bacteria and not go to borders and save it from bankruptcy by, you know, pulling a copy of Finnegan's Wake off the, the shelf. Uh, so it, it's, we can think about it in fair use, but I think the, a court could do away with a lawsuit over this, even without getting to the to the fair use question because of the, the point of it's just de minimis copying and it's not, you don't even have to admit for the sake of argument that it's infringement. I don't know, Evan, I'm envisioning a whole new kind of bit torrent where somehow people are gathering up all the microbes and reassembling the work. <laughs> oh, geez, that's great. You just, you, you can read it. Maybe it's a new model for Netflix. They just send Petri dishes. I don't know. That's right. It looks like a disc. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I wanted to get to um, a question for our law and journalism students that is near and dear to my heart because one of my favorite 
uh, ways to start the day is to check out damnyouautocorrect.com. Um, so, so hysterically funny. And, and the, for anyone who has not seen it, uh, it is a site where people take screenshots of mostly their iPhones, it seems like. Well, um, iPhones are the worst with autocorrect. They're autocorrect. Right, exactly is just really bad compared to um, BlackBerry or any of the other phones in, in my experience. It's, they come up with these absurd words um, when you're doing, when you're typing text messages. It's right. funny. Putting absolutely hysterical things in people's mouths or at their fingertips that they never meant to say. Um, and, you know, taking screenshots of the particularly wonderful ones and uh, posting them up on this site. And the site, as I understand it, is about to, surprise, surprise, publish a book, a compilation of all of these things. And uh, Evan, this goes to the question we've asked on the show before about, uh, and, and the de minimis uh, point that we've been making with this prior story. Um, the question about whether tweets are copyrightable. Now we're, I guess, down to the micro level of text messages about that same um, <laughs> volume of characters. Um, can they be copyrightable too? And uh, and again, this whole aspect of needing to get permission from folks because you know when you have one of these hysterical moments, you take the screenshot, you send it in. You know, I, I doubt there's a lot of permission being asked for or gained in connection with a site like this. And this, by the way, is not the only kind of site like this. There are so many examples out there now of, uh, of people capturing these little moments in their lives um, that are absurd or funny or what have you. Um, their interactions with other people that they've either been part of or overheard and sharing them online. Um, you know, the, the guy who mm -hmm. became the... Um, TV impresario of uh, S word, my dad says, started out on Twitter. Same kind of idea. Um, so uh, let's go to Don first. What do you guys think of this kind of phenomenon? And, uh, you know, if you were confronted with this scenario on a law school exam, um, what would you say to the person uh, compiling up these uh, images and and wanting to publish a book? Um, I mean, first of all, you have to look at the content of the text messages. I mean, obviously there's, you know, there's little things that aren't meant to be there, misspellings and funny uh, little quirky things that happen with the autocorrect. But I mean, let's say that you were texting somebody um, the lyrics of a song. I mean, I don't know if you'd really have much of a case for copyright infringement there, but you really have to be careful when you're putting anyone else's work out there um, even in the form of, you know, this kind of autocorrect, ha, 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 it's so funny. Because if you're only changing one or two letters to make a word different, you know, you're not really changing the whole thing. That being said, you can also say, hey, look, this is a parody. It's obviously meant to be kind of a spoof and be funny and look at the use and, and what we're, you know, trying to do with it. But, you know, I mean, I think also maybe somebody's texting you, uh, you know, this poem that they wrote and that they have copyrighted and they want to put into a book and then you're throwing it in a book and putting it on the internet. You know, I mean, you just have a lot of issues that you have to be careful with. Right, and also a lot of times on websites, when you post something, your posts are subject to the website's terms of service. And if, you know, this particular website with the autocorrect text, you know, has a, you know, a clause in their terms of service saying that you're basically giving up your copyright ownership in the, in these text messages, then as, you know, as Facebook does with the pictures that you upload, 
then I think, you know, your claim would probably be limited in that sense. I think that this whole site, this particular site is interesting because there is a definite journalistic implication to what they're doing. And that is an indictment of how poorly autocorrect works. And so, you know, there is definitely an editorial comment being made simply in the existence of the site. So that, you know, apart from whatever permission they're formally obtaining through their terms of service, I think that they actually have, you know, a journalistic function here that uh, that might well protect them too. What do you think, Evan? Yeah, there's there's a number of different things I, I you know think about all this. The that's that's good, you know, the journalistic uh, perspective of it and, and justifying it, you know, in that way. And and I think we could also kind of examine the question of whether or not, um, you know, this stuff is copyrightable in the first instance. In this way, I know we were talking about you know the whole looking at it from from the Twitter uh, example. I love thinking about the copyright implications of the semantic web, uh, and at a very um, kind of rudimentary level, autocorrect is an example of semantic technology where it's the the technology is considering what it thinks you mean. You know, so there we get the the semantic aspect of it, and I've often pondered, you know, as as works can arise through interactions of data on the semantic web, then they're assembled in such a way that it does not necessarily reflect the intention of the user. Is there really a copyrighted work there? Uh, to to begin with, it's I, I characterize it as a as a separation or an an, an evolution uh, that results in a separation between uh, author and and work. So if you know, and, and and this could get kind of silly in our discussions with it here, but you know, if you're going to be uploading something, or let's just say, if a screenshot is uploaded where the um, where you are the one who was not the victim of the autocorrect, but it's the person with whom you were conversing, you could say that the resulting work that came out, you know, because of the effect of the autocorrect isn't truly a work of that other person. And so therefore there are no copyright implications uh, at all, which, you know, plays into what we're talking about, looking at this from a, a journalistic standpoint or from the standpoint of of critique or or otherwise. Uh, that all just that all just plays in as in as much as it is the subject matter of of what indeed is being critiqued or or or, or talked about with with all of this stuff. Well, I think we all agree that uh, the the stuff that gets posted to Damn You Autocorrect is just a joy, and we love having it in our lives. And you know, I love checking in with it and just chuckling to my heart's content, but uh, people are less sanguine about the short messages they're receiving from telemarketers on their phones. Um, Sarah, was this your story on Legal yes. Shia Spoke? Yes. About uh, telemarketers and text messaging. Why don't you tell us about that yeah. and uh, the legalities involved? Well, it turns, that, it turns out that any unsolicited text message from a company that has um, this automated capacity to send out mass text messages are illegal. There is the, um, sorry, <laughs> the lights just went out in our room. Oh, they're going back on. Sorry about that. There is the sure. Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which protects, um, which protects you against receiving any unsolicited text messages. Um, and you don't have to necessarily incur a charge for the text message. 
it just has to um, have been sent out through a system that sends out mass text messages. So, which is good for everyone to know that they are illegal. Yes, and, and yeah, is that is that under anti-spam laws or have, has there been new no, law enacted that specifically deals with this kind of communication? There was the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. I'm not sure when it was passed, but it didn't specifically include the word text message. It just um, had the word call in the statute. Any, you know, it uh, it was illegal to um, to send any unsolicited calls. However, recent course court cases have interpreted the word call to include text messages. So that's where, um, you know, that's where this has come from. There were cases where movie studios were sending out text messages to promote their films. Um, the story, the case I wrote about was Winter Media, which is the parent company of Rolling Stone and some other magazines were sending out um, unsolicited promotional offers via text message. So there's been quite a few um, recent class actions against these text messages and they have been found to come within this act. So good to know. Right. Um, how about robot calls? Do you think that that would come within this act as well? So if it's not actually a person, it's um, a mechanized yeah, kind of Because I get yeah. tons of those on my cell phone. Yeah, well, the statute criminalizes um, the, it's not necessarily that it has to be a person, the company that's in charge of making these phones, phone calls or text messages have to have the automated capacity to send out calls or texts, you know, in mass. So, you know, the fact that it's a robot or a person isn't, you know, doesn't necessarily matter as much as the equipment they were using had the capacity to send out, you know, all these different texts or calls at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I know that you can opt out. There's a do not call registry that you can sign up for so you'll avoid um, any of these telemarketing calls or text messages. Right, in theory. Right, Some right. Get through. <laughs> Evan, Evan, what do you think about this notion of, of um, making this kind of conduct illegal? Uh, you're you're our um, ace person at finding the exception to uh, to when there's a law and, and having it be an appropriate application. Um, can you think of examples of when there would be a, a mass communication that um, some entity might want to make that, uh, you know, society as a whole would agree is a good thing and should not be, I, I, I want to say criminalized. I don't think that there are probably criminal penalties for this, although who knows, maybe there are. I haven't looked at the statute. What do you think, Kevin? Um, I think the, the low-hanging fruit on this would be, you know, looking at it from some kind of First Amendment issue. You know, do you have some kind of First Amendment right to, to broadcast something? And, and I'm led, to, and, and I realize this is not the perfect First Amendment analysis, but, you know, at least in my thinking, um, I, I'm thinking imperfectly as I often do here, uh, it leads one to consider the, the public interest or, you know, the compelling government interest, which, you know, hopefully in most circumstances is going to be, uh, you know, have the same contours as, as the public interest here. And so shouldn't there be some kind of exception to make these um, uh, communications when the public interest is, is clearly at stake? Let's suppose there's, oh, I don't know, I'm going to use my imagination, a huge... Uh, a natural disaster that causes extensive damage to a nuclear reactor. Totally making right. this up. 
Right. Um, it, and, you know, the, you need to distribute iodine pills to everybody. Uh, and you need to let them know where they need to go pick up those, uh, you know, those it's, it's iodine pills, right? It's some kind of iodine. I think it's potassium iodide. Potassium iodide. So probably much People here on the West Coast are quite freaked out about this right now. Yeah, so I'm, I'm aware of the name of the substance, which apparently, so I'm told, is completely out of supply on uh, sites, you know, where you would buy vitamin supp supplements, et cetera. And bottles yeah. of it are now going for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But right. Go on. So, so maybe it it would fit best on the shoulders of a of a non governmental entity, somebody who otherwise would be, you know, on um, you know within the constraints of of these of this legislative regulation, you know, to have the ability to make those types of communications for the sake of the public interest, uh, when otherwise they would be prohibited uh, along these lines. So again, you know, you can see where my thinking is a little bit imperfect. That's that's not purely a First Amendment question, but it, it certainly is a situation where a, a type of speech that would otherwise be regulated by this should be, uh, should be permitted for, for whatever countervailing interest is, is there. Right. All right. Well, thank you for that. I want to get to uh, one more story from the Legal As She Spoke blog, and this one that uh, Don wrote up about hacking the PSP. And, uh, you know, generally when we think of jailbreaking these devices, um, circumventing protective measures that are in place, it's a pretty straightforward DMCA violation and, and folks have been prosecuted for it in the past and Microsoft has been pretty um, aggressive over the years, except when it comes to its connect, it's being a lot more uh, um, tolerant of these sorts of activities. But apparently Sony with uh, its line of game systems is not being so tolerant. Uh, Don, can you tell us about this case and, and why you think that uh, Sony has a problem here? Sure. Um, so Sony is suing uh, George Hotz. He is a local New Jersey gentleman um, who put on his website um, the the keys or the code uh, to jailbreak the Sony PSP or PS3. I'm sorry. Um, and basically, this is a way to you know get around um, the barriers, and you can kind of break your your PlayStation so that you can play like. Uh, any game that you want, you can, you know, you don't just have to play Sony games and you can kind of unlock it, similar to the um, the iPhone jailbreak. Um, but basically, the DMCA, their laws are meant to criminalize, you know, the acts of getting around the barriers to copy certain material. It's not actually just getting around the barriers. And I think that, you know, Sony's going to have a problem, um, you know, basically saying that only unlocking or jailbreaking the the console is illegal because I don't think it is. I think, you know, they have the right to say, hey, look, um, we void your warranty. We're going to kick you off of our system, which they actually did. They kicked everyone off of, um, you know, whatever like the world is that you get to go to. And it's kind of the online uh, where you play games against different people. So, you know, if they find out that you've jailbroken your console, they can kick you off of that. They can void your warranty. But I don't think that they have a real case here um, against, you know, HOTS or any of the users that actually jailbreak the systems. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because, um, you know, in many of these instances, uh, folks have been able to... Um, go after hackers and prevent, prevent jailbreaking. Uh, and we've needed things like 
exemptions from the copyright office for things like jailbreaking the iPhone uh, to make sure that that is okay. So, um, uh, Sarah, any thoughts on this one? No, I just think it's, you know, fascinating and interesting that there are all these ways to to bypass, the, you know, the intended product to, um, you know, with the iPhone so you can use certain applications or even, you know, the PS3. I don't see them actually copying anything. It's just mm -hmm. they're, you know, kind of hacking into the software itself. Mm -hmm. And there's actually an interesting video that I linked to um, in my article. And it's, you know, it's saying, look, what if you bought a car and you were only allowed to get gas at the, you know, manufacturer's approved gas station. You're only allowed to listen to manufacturer approved radio stations in the car, manufacturer approved tires. I mean, it's, it's kind of a control issue. And the reason that the DMCA made this accept or exemption um, for the iPhone jailbreaking is because they're like, look, we don't, we don't want to aid them in completely controlling everything that people are doing on their iPhones. And there was, you know, an interesting copyright case where it was like the maker of um, a garage door opener was uh, was suing the maker of one of you know the universal garage door openers for being compatible right. you're, with this. You're, you're asking my uh, my adult aging brain to go really far back to come up yeah. with the name of that case. <laughs> uh, Evan, do you have it at the tips of yeah, your time? Uh, Don yeah, Don mentions it in the uh, in in the article here. It's the Chamberlain case from here in the Seventh Circuit. From there we and go. Yeah, yes. this is going way back, two thousand four. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> so far, yeah. But it was an interesting case, and I, they didn't find copyright infringement because I think that you know they wanted. They just they said it it would be I guess inequitable for the universal remote to to actually get a license from the maker of this garage door opener. Am I correct in that analysis? Yeah, that, I mean, she, she, she recognized this important connection between the anti-circumvention provisions in 1201 and, and the trafficking provisions there. Um, recognize the important connection between that and the underlying copyright interests. So to the extent that the work, the access being prohibited or the protection being given doesn't pertain to, uh, you know, the risk or, or the actual infringement of that work taking place there, it's not actionable under the, under section 1201, which, you know, with, amazingly, I think that's, that, you know, a great ruling and it makes a lot of sense, but, you know, honestly, I think that's a pretty strained interpretation of, of, of section 12. One, but uh, we see we've seen other courts do similar uh, stuff with it. You know the the Lexmark case out of the Sixth Circuit a couple couple years later, and then there was just a case uh, from I think it was out there in the Ninth Circuit, right? Um, it was at the MDI case that came out. So you know we certainly see a trend in this way, and the the, the positive thing for us to take home from that is it it does seem to to temper a little bit of the outrageousness that people see in in the you know the the anti circumvention of the of the DMCA. Um, you know, in, it tempers it so that the courts, you know, actually are reasonable at at some points in, in recognizing this connection with the fact that it that it is part of the copyright law, not just some form of li new form of liability that comes out of left field from you know space or something. <laughs> All right, uh, Don and Sarah, I, I never got an email back from you, so I want to make sure you're ready to do this. I asked you guys um, if you might want to do our tip of the week this week. Is that something you're prepared to give us? Well, our tip of the week uh, for you, if you know, you're know you a citizen and you want to do something with journalism, you have a picture, you have a story that you want to put out there, um, we suggest that you go to sitmedialaw.org 
Um, it basically tells you everything you need to know, different states, different regulations, all the different protections that are offered for journalists, um, shield laws and that kind of stuff. And it's a really, really helpful um, website that we think that you should definitely yeah, consult. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of privacy laws vary state by state and this website actually gives you a great breakdown um, of, you know, like wiretapping or eavesdropping or recording audio and video. So it's a great resource for anyone out there who has a desire to post um, their material online. And one thing that I'd said before too, um, going back to that, it's a lot about putting yourself out there and holding yourself out to actually be recording or, you know, videotaping something. I mean, it's just, it's not in anyone's best interest for you to be snooping around and, you know, trying to be some sort of sleuth and put stuff on the internet or, you know, I mean, you're, you could really get yourself into trouble that way. So if you're going to take a picture, if you're going to interview someone, you know, let them know that you're doing so and try to get as much permission as possible so that you're not held liable. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Yes, we love sitmedialaw.org and the blog they have there. Wonderful project and incredibly useful for folks engaged in any form of citizen journalism or media. So thanks so much for that. Uh, we have a couple of resources of the week for you to check out. One is from the law firm of Morrison Forster. And uh, again, it's linked in our delicious links for the show. It's called Privacy in the Cloud, a Legal Framework for Moving Personal Data to the Cloud. It's a guide for businesses. So if this is something where you're moving personal data uh, to the cloud and you are a business, you're going to want to check this out because it's a really nice um, guide for that kind of activity. And uh, one other resource to check out, something that's been causing a bit of controversy in the legal world, as new things in the legal world tend to do. Um, and it was uh, started by a 21-year-old law student named Robert Grant Niznik, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And he has come up with something that's sort of an eBay for lawyering. It's got a really, really strange name called... <laughs> Spookle, <laughs> S-H-P-O-O-N-K-L-E. And it's a way that uh, if you have a legal problem, you can get lawyers to bid on taking that work. And uh, what they're doing is sort of bidding down um, so that you can find an attorney that fits your budget for the problem. So um, check out Spoonkle uh, if you're interested in a new way to um, locate legal services and a new way that lawyers might provide them. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank our wonderful panelists for joining us today. You guys have had great insights and I really appreciate your joining us on the show. Uh, Don, I know you're on Twitter at Donnie Pony. <laughs> Any other uh, sites besides Legal As She Has Spoke, your wonderful blog you'd like to plug before we wrap up? Well, no, you can follow us on Twitter at um, L-A-S-I-S underscore blog, because that's where we, um, we post our updates. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, Sarah, great to have you too. Appreciate you. both your, your good work over uh, at your blog. And uh, we'll continue to check that out. Thank great. you so much. Thank you. Evan, great having you on again as well. Well, I have uh, certainly enjoyed it. It's been it's been a lot of fun, a lot of interesting uh, interesting things to talk about, and it's been great talking with you, Sarah and uh, Don. Good luck with uh, finals and all that stuff. <laughs> thank all those, you. All those fun law school Thanks. things. <laughs> yes, thanks for taking the time, you too. And uh, folks, do follow Evan over on Twitter. He's Internet Cases on Twitter, and of course, his wonderful blog at internetcases.com. 
We'll see you you next week for the next episode of This Week in Law. Take care, all.